Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the TTE podcast. And today I've got uh, good friends of the pod, Ashley and John, with me. And we're going to talk through um, a little bit about um, what's going on. We've had a major change last week with the inauguration. And I thought I'd get these two together and what I think is going to be, or not what I think, but it'll be part uh, one of a two-part series about sort of the worried optimism that I have with this new administration. Um, so with that, um, let, let's get started. So the first thing I kind of want to do with you guys is just talk about your overall impressions of Inauguration Day. And the reason why I say that is because, on, excuse me, on some level, I thought it went really well, like the pageantry and everything, but it was weird not seeing people there. And it was weird with the troops and the barbed wire and everything, but um, it did go off with a hitch. I thought all things considered, I thought it was pretty successful. Um, I appreciated at least the the tone that was set um, by Biden in terms of calling for unity, which we'll get into later. Um, and clearly Amanda Gorman stole the show. Um, but uh, before I, we get too deep into it, I, I want to hear what you guys thought, your just initial impressions of, of the ceremony and the day and sort of what you took from it. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, first of all, thanks for having us on the show. Um, I love the show. Glad to be a part of it. Uh, love to have the conversation. Um, I think for me, I, it was a, a feeling of relief. Uh, there was a lot of weight that came off of the shoulders um, you, you talk a little bit about the pageantry that was going on and there was a point after the main inauguration where apparently unbeknownst to me, the Congress meets with the incoming president and they give them a few presents. There was some, uh, a painting and this vase from the Lennox company that came in and there was this weird moment where it, it was just that relief around, oh, we're going back to the normalcy of politics and kind of the pomp and circumstance of it. Um, and it was it was really exciting, really relieving um, to to see that that coming back into play. Yeah, yeah I, I, agree. I, Go ahead. Go ahead, I think there was I, I love the word you used, John, that was relief. And for me, I don't know that I realized how much tension I was holding until the day <laughs> of the inauguration. I, like most Americans, had my laptop. I had one screen in front of me over here, and then I had the TV over here, and I had it on for the entire thing. And I found myself multiple times through it just openly crying. And... That is yeah. not a thing that is normal <laughs> for me. I, I am a pretty like well kept together with my emotions person, sometimes to my detriment. And I sat there that day like, oh, my God, I'm actually crying right now. And it, it was, John, it was this overwhelming sense of relief of we did it. It's, it's over. And I love when you said we can go back to the sense of normalcy. And I'd love to talk more about this later. But What's interesting to me is normalcy still needs a lot of work. And to me, I think there's this idea of like, okay, okay, we did it. Now let's get back to work. 
But for that day, there was this sense of taking a breath and feeling proud that this feeling of hopelessness that I think many of us had had for a really long time, I felt a lot of that come off that day. Not all of it, because there's still a lot that needs to happen in this country, but there was a big amount of it that came off. It's like, okay, all right, we can do this. Yeah, I think so too. I think the two things that I sort of took away from it was um, it felt good to see the video of the three presidents that did attend the inauguration have a message for Joe Biden in the country. I thought that was really important, um, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum. I think it was just good. These are um, three guys that serve two terms apiece. So there's, you know, 24 years worth of presidential experience right there. Um, and they didn't get into specifics, but they talked a lot about unity and what was important and what was good for the country. And, and I thought that was good for people to see. And then the second thing that this speaks to your point, Ash, about the level of comfort, I guess. And that's not the term I really want to use, but I, I felt my anxiety um, reduced tremendously when after the inauguration ceremony is over and they have uh, a daily uh, a press briefing and the press secretary comes out and it was like a normal pre uh, press secretary or it was like a normal uh, press conference where people Weird, are right? asking questions and, and she's giving answers and I'm looking at this going, oh my God, this is what it used to be. <laughs> but but four years ago, Sean Spicer got up there and immediately uh, said it's the largest crowd in the history of inauguration and it can't be disputed ever. <laughs> and it's like, hold on. It's and this set the tone. Been, and this has really been my frustration over the last four years is this suggestion that I didn't see what I just saw or someone trying to suggest to me that don't pay attention to the man in the corner. He's 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 of no consequence. Focus on what I'm saying, not what I'm doing. And even though I felt like her answers were on the level of spin to some degree, and, and that's just the nature of the game, because she's going to have to spin the answers to put the president in the best light possible. That's just the nature of the job. At no point did I feel like she was untrustworthy or that she was untruthful in what it is that she was saying. It was just a degree of spin. But these weren't outright lies. Like this was like grounded in like objectivity and fact. And then that was further supported, I think, the next day when they had Dr. Fauci come up and then he starts oh, talking. And now yeah. he's able to sort of freely speak about, you know, where he's coming from, let the science lead the way and and all of that. And then talk about how it's different with this administration versus the previous one. And that sort of gave me hope just in the sense of there is competence in the government. And then the last thing I'll say about it is just transitioning um, out of the inauguration. The one thing I appreciate about Biden's cabinet is not necessarily the diversity of it. What I appreciate about it is all of the people that he's nominating to these positions are people who are experts in said subject. And that's what I appreciated more than anything, because these are people that are passionate about energy. They're passionate about defense or treasury or whatever the office is. And that gave me some level of comfort to say, hey, these people are going to report to the president, but they're going to be empowered to make decisions because these are knowledgeable people who have spent their lives 
researching these issues and are passionate about them. Now, whether or not they're going to be effective or whether or not the policies they support are going to be the right things, that remains to be seen. But for at least now, there's competence in these governmental agencies, and that feels good. That's I think absolutely, good. yes. It's it's really nice to see the level of competence and the level of diversity that's coming out of the group. Um, you know, it's, I just got the, the message that um, Yellen was confirmed uh, just a few minutes ago to be the first Secretary of the Treasury who's a woman. Um, our first Secretary of Defense, who's a black man, um, was confirmed last week. Uh, the Assistant Secretary to the Health Department um, is trans. Um, and there's there's story after story that's coming out with this. So I think, you know, there's definitely that. The Department of the Interior. Is a Native American. Absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. So it, some really strong choices, some really strong representations out of it. And also not not the evil villain, because that's what it really felt like every, you know, Betsy DeVos just felt like the prototypical evil villain to be the secretary of education. And it is, it, it feels like we can make progress. Like you, you called it out really well, Ash, at the beginning that no, you know, we're not done. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but we've at least set a table where people can come to the table, have that conversation, have their voices be heard um, and have action happen. So um, I've been pleased so far from what I've seen out of the administration on that. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know if either of you guys saw this. It was sometime during the day of the inauguration, but Biden essentially said that he has a zero tolerance policy for disrespect within his cabinet. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I saw if he that. finds out that there is disrespect that somebody is giving, he's like, I have zero tolerance. I will remove you from your position and not think twice about it. We are going to be a cabinet where we respect one another. And again, whether I don't know whether that's something that he's saying just to say, but it's, it, I think it's the kind of thing, you know, my six-year-old sat and watched much of the day with me. That's the kind of thing that our children need to hear coming out of the highest elected official in the country's mouth. And I, I agree with you. That's where I get into the optimistic part uh, that I, I'm proud to be able to tell my son, hey, we're moving in a good direction. Right. So with that being said, I think that segues, uh, segues nicely into the, the next thing I want to get into is in, from your perspectives, um, and it's not a so, well, it's not a secret amongst the three of us that you guys lean more left than I do. But what do you guys hope to see from a from a Biden administration? Like, what what do you hope that gets accomplished at least within the next eighteen months, two years? What do, what do you hope to see get done now that he's won and you've got a House that has a majority and the Senate has a majority by one vote, but it's not enough to overcome a filibuster. So, so, so what do you, Ash, I'll start with you. What, what do you hope to see in the next 20, 18 to 24 months? You know what, I'll go with the first thing that came to my mind. And what we saw over the last year or so is that by and large, the Democratic Party came together to say, 
the most important thing is winning these elections, right? In, in November, this is the most important thing. But the truth of the matter is, much like what we're seeing happen in the Republican Party, there are kind of these two for lack of a better word, factions of the Democratic Party that exist, right? There's kind of the the old guard Democrats, and there's this new progressive wave that's coming through. And what we have seen, especially in the House, where there's certainly more of those, quote, new guard progressives, um, is kind of a rejection of it. Uh, and this idea that, well, those viewpoints, they don't, they don't resonate with Americans and people don't want that. And we're not going to give credence to that, but that's not true. People in these, I'm going to keep using this phrase, new wave progressive party, they they're winning seats left and right. And that tells you that there is a desire within the country for these policies. What I hope over the next 18 to 24 months is we start to see more of a coming together of the Democratic Party. And what that requires is give and take on both, quote, sides. And I think that there has been some slowness for that. Um, And I think that if we don't figure that out in the next 18 to 24 months, we are going to continue to have to fight harder than we should to win different elections. I I am um, very happy to see Bernie um, heading up the budget committee. I think that is a step in the right direction. Um, And I'm hoping to see more of that coming together because I think if the Democratic Party doesn't choose to embrace the ever-growing number of progressives in this country, they are going to continue shooting themselves in the foot. So let me ask you this question because you touched on something that I think is is important. My sense of these progressives winning these House races I think Cori Bush is a really good example of this, because she ran as a progressive relative to the um, incumbent that held the seat, because I think she primaried that person and then won the general election. Is it that Americans are open to this progressive message, or are these progressives winning um, very gerrymandered districts? Like, are they really flipping Republican districts with a progressive message. And I don't know the answer to that question, but my sense is everybody's inside of their bubble. And a lot of that has to do with how the districts are gerrymandered. Like if you look at Jim Jordan's district, no one would draw a district the way that's drawn. And so my sense is, is that because everybody's in their bubble and their representatives are telling them what they want to hear, this isn't progressives flipping Republican seats. These are, these are progressives replacing moderate Democrats. That's my sense uh, of it. A hundred percent. But what we saw happen in 2016 is when those two sides of the Democratic Party were at complete and total odds with one another. Now, I'm not saying that that was the reason why Hillary didn't win. I think there were many, many factors, but I think that there certainly was a degree of a chunk of the Democratic base feeling very disenfranchised. Um, I, for one, am a progressive. I felt disenfranchised. I still voted for Hillary, but I know people that chose not to. And so I think that when, and it's true, right? When, When people vote, when high numbers of people vote, Democrats win. That's true. 
And I think that it's not necessarily that progressives are beating Republicans. It's that the idea of the Democratic Party is changing. And I think that old guard is is slow to adopt that because that's human nature, right? This is the way we've always done things. We don't want to change. This is I, I, this is how things are. But I think the more that they choose not to embrace that other side, the more fractioned it will be and the, the lower voter turnout they will have. Okay. John, what do you think? Um, so, I mean, kind of to spurn off that as well, I think the, the idea of this progressive candidate is a misnomer. I think that we we get so mixed up in where the center of the country is. If you look at some of these ideas that are considered quote unquote progressive, um, healthcare for all, a living wage, uh, the opportunity to educate yourself um, without putting yourself in just unbelievable amounts of debt, it's not quite as progressive. There's there's a joke that I've seen online. Um, that said that AOC would have to run as a moderate in a lot of different um, industrialized nations because the concepts that she's pushing for aren't as progressive as they may seem. Um, and I and I think that kind of rolls into the challenge that I see for the Biden administration and what I'd like to see out of the Biden administration. Um, we, we heard him uh, at the inauguration vow that he was going to protect and defend the Constitution. And so I, I think much to the same point that Ash had, we've got 18 to 24 months to bolster our government to protect against another attack like we just endured for the last four years, because that's what it was. In the end, we saw it on the 6th of January, this was an attempt to subvert our government. And that's not a new idea for the Republican Party. The other thing that Ashley says that everybody seems to agree to is that when people in vote in high numbers, when we see representation of the population show up, Democrats win. So when democracy operates the way that it is supposed to, Democrats win. And that's that's kind of becomes the challenge in of itself of how do you fix these gerrymandered districts? How do you fix uh, these voter ID laws? Um, how do you fix the the ability for a felon to have the right to their constitutional right to their vote um, when it appears on the surface? Um, the 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 new uh, press secretary said it really well. They asked why she was going after so many Democratic tenants. Um, and the question then becomes, what? which one of these tenants aren't Democratic? Um, getting people to show up to the polls, that's not Democratic. That's a, a big D Democrat policy. Um, I, I would like to see this administration work to bolster our, our policies, our procedures, so that we do return more to that core of a democracy where it is the people's voice, the people's vote that's represented and actually institutes our our representatives and the policies that they govern as well. And I think that makes sense. And I think in the conversations I've had with people, um, I find that there's there's it's 
a, a cliche, I think, for people to say that, oh, well, there's so much that we have more in common that separates us in this than the third. But I, I find that that's true because when I have conversations with people, we generally agree on just about everything. Where we get polarized is in the execution of it because it's it's evolved into a bit of a zero-sum game. And so what I hope the Biden administration does is not do what Democrats always do, which is they compromise in a way that doesn't exactly, uh, in, in a compromise, no one ever gets what they want, but it just feels like for the last 12 to 20 years, I'd say, compromise really means Republicans sacrificing nothing and Democrats bending over backwards to get a deal that's not favorable to them. And if it's compromise, both sides have to give something up. And it's always been my frustration with Democrats that they just lack a backbone, at least with Republicans. I may not always agree with the policy and the approach, but damn it, I know where they stand. It's not if there's no ambiguity about it. And so that's my sort of frustration with Democrats. So I just hope that uh, while the calls for unity and everything are important and the bipartisanship that everybody wants is important, I, I think it's clear you know, the majority of the country, over 80 million people voted for them. They need mm-hmm. to deliver on that promise because I yeah. can tell you there are a lot of people that I know that you guys know most likely that feel like, OK, you got my vote. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. And how are you going to make my life better? And so I just feel like you can't compromise with people who don't have an interest in compromising. So the best example I can give is this conversation about the filibuster. And for those that are listening that don't know, the filibuster is an old rule from the Senate that basically means you need 60 votes to get anything passed, with the exception of a few scenarios or instances. And so there's a lot of talk about just getting rid of this and passing everything on a simple majority. And there's a dark side to the moon with that type of approach. Um, but one particular uh, Democrat from West Virginia has come out and said he's not for that and he won't vote for it. So it's probably dead. But if you had a simple majority of 50 plus one, you could get so much more done. But the I think what paralyzes Democrats is if it's if you're on the other side of that, you almost can't do anything. So because now you're subject to the majority rule and whatnot. So. Um, I get it. And the politics of it demand that you be very smart and calculating about it. But I just don't think after 80 some million people voted for you that you can pussyfoot around with what needs to get done. And someone I saw um, or I was listening to something the other day and someone pointed this out. And I do think this is valid is um, Biden's asking for one point nine trillion for the stimulus package. Um, COVID relief and all of this stuff. And I'm not saying that the money's not needed, but I do think it is a fair to point out that in the last year, we've spent close to $5 billion in money we don't have. And now you're asking for more money. And I think this is a really good example of where Democrats are, what, what are Democrats going to do? Are you going to fight to really help people who are really struggling? Or are you going to placate these demands from Republicans and let people suffer 
on account of, well, we just don't think we can get it done, so we're not going to try. And so that's my hope is that they find a way to really get at solutions that help people um, without worrying about the political consequences on a personal level. Like, oh, I might not get reelected. Do the right thing. And then if you do the right thing by people, people will reelect you by and large. That's just my so, two cents. So I'm, I'm curious, though, Dennis, it did, like on the one hand, you, you talk about the filibuster being something that you're not sure that you're willing to pull the plug on yet. Um, and, and whether, you know, Manchin allows that to happen, that that's a huge question mark. And in the same thought saying, hey, if we don't go to these new voters who came out, um, supported this administration, and we don't show them substantive change in their life, they're not going to continue to support us. And so you look at something like that filibuster, which has just been absolutely throttled throughout Obama's administration to, um, to gridlock the Congress. Um, where is that point? And I think that that's the bigger issue that we run into is, and I don't want to give a free pass to the Democrats. I'm not by any means saying that they are without sin and they are perfect. I think that they are just, you know, five degrees better than the Republicans. They're all a large part of money grubbing individuals. But I think some of the challenge that we get into is that the Democrats tend to play by the rules more often and the the GOP will just dismiss the rule or undermine the rule in a different way. And I really I point to Al Franken as my my example there. Al Franken sexually assaulted an individual um, and did the right thing, stepped down from his position um, and and you know stepped out of the public spotlight and, and fessed up to what he did. And in the same light, we don't see that kind of honesty. We don't see that kind of um, conscious coming from the Republican Party. So how do we say these are the rules that we shouldn't undermine because we need to give this level of fairness, because we need to have this going on the way that it is yeah, versus I, yeah, how yeah. do we deliver on? Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, John, I think you're right. I, I, I think I guess what I'm trying to say is there's. You have to be willing, and this is where Democrats, this is where I find them frustrating. I think you have to try in the effort of unity and bipartisanship, given the composition of the Senate, to say, hey, we do want to work in good faith with you. But if you're not going to work in good faith with us, this is what we're going to do. And you pushed us to this and stand by that decision. Don't let them sell you wolf tickets for something that you can't like they, they will stand on principle. And they'll stand on principle and they will die on whatever hill they, they die on. Democrats won't do that. And I just think they've got to get some backbone to say, if you're not going to work with us, then we get rid of the filibuster. And whatever comes after that is whatever comes after that. But we have to deliver help to people. And they won't do that. See, and I and think that's I, my frustration with I, them. That's why I could never be Democrat. Because sometimes in life, you just got to nut and, up. And these guys don't nut up. And it, it's frustrating. And I feel that same frustration. Um, and I think that that timeline finished for me last Tuesday, the day before the inauguration. Um, it is traditional that the the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security um, is is um, approved the day before the election so that we can have that continuity 
of security for the nation. And they held that up um, if just for the purposes of causing headaches for this new administration. So I think you've already burned that bridge. You've already set the tone the day before the inauguration of who you're going to be. And so for me, that is exactly what you're calling for. It's time to nut up. It's time to say, hey, we're going to use budget reconciliation, reconciliation if we need to. Um, but we are going to do what's right for the American people and get this this train moving. And one, one more thing I want to say before I ask you jump in is that when it comes to that, you also can't be afraid about what the opposition is going to say about you on, you know, mm. print and media and TV and the Internet. Who gives a shit what anybody says about you? Like, I can tell you, honestly, mm. one of the best and biggest compliments I've ever gotten in my life was from a good friend of mine who said, you really don't give a shit what people think of you. And I don't know how to be any other way. And so it, and I realize everybody can't be that way. That's selfish for me to think that everybody should be that way. I get it. Everybody's different. But if you're going to be in this line of work, if you're going to play this game, then you can't give a shit about what the other side says. You just can't. When people were really out here suffering and you are really trying to pass policy and these people are preventing you from putting policies in place that will help people or these people are not willing to compromise and meet you halfway. You And if that's the case, then go. Don't worry about what the hell they say. But it just they I find them frustrating. I, I think that's why I like all of this because I, I find it frustrating in a weird, so it's sort of like pain is pleasure. Um, it's right. sort of that for me. So, but Ash, what do you think? Uh, it, it, it's hard because I, I, I hear everything you're saying and, and I, I agree. Uh, it's not going to happen. It's, it's not going to happen where people are going to um, care or not care about what everybody's going to say and, that they're going to do the right thing because it's the right thing. It's not going to happen. And in my opinion, the only way that it will happen is if we set term limits. I think what happens is we get these politicians oh, yeah. who have been in here for a freaking lifetime. And the only thing that matters to them is being reelected. And that's why we're not seeing change. That's why we're not seeing movement. That's why we're seeing the uh, results of Citizens United plaguing worse and worse and worse on our country. And for those that are listening, Citizens United was a Supreme Court decision that essentially said that corporations can give an unlimited amount of money to politicians. And all because of a sudden, it's not our... Exactly. It's not our... Corporations are people, but they're not counted in the census. So I don't I, I never bought that argument. If they're people, then they should count in the census. But they and, don't count and in the census. So I don't what happens is that. our vote is almost no longer important. It's it's how much money we can get. But I digress. Um I, I, I don't think that we will see substantive change in people doing what is right until we can have something like term limits. And uh, sadly, I don't see people who have spent their entire careers doing this voting to say, sure, I'll spend two more or four more years doing this, and then I'll vote myself out. It's not going to happen. So I, I recognize that right now I'm taking a very negative, pessimistic outlook on this. Um, I, I don't think that we're going to see substantive change in this administration. I don't. 
I think that we've got a long way to go within a very corrupt political system before we're going to see any of those changes happen. So with that being said, um, Ash, what do you think are going to be some of the challenges associated um, with this administration in terms of what it is that they're going to face? Because I, I feel like there's an opposition party that is going to um, try to stop them. And I'm saying that not based on what they say about, hey, we want to work with the president, more so about their behavior and the behavior that they've shown for over 20 years now. And don't get me wrong, you can sort of same side that position. I don't want to make it seem like they're all evil. One side's evil and one side's good. Like there's, you can same side that. But, but what are some of those challenges? Because I just think to me, one of the biggest challenges is there are going to be people who know what the right thing is, but can't or will not vote on the right thing because they can't sell it back home. And to me, that's going to be the biggest challenge that they face is you've got somebody who knows what the right thing is, but won't do it. And I don't know how you fix that. I don't think I don't think we can. And, and I, I keep I'm going to say it again. I think it's term limits um, because it, at some point there are people that and we, we heard it. Um, I read many articles over the last four years of you know, in closed doors, people saying, I know that I need to what let's talk about the impeachment, right? Um, not the one we're dealing with right now, but the first time Donald Trump was impeached when it went to the, the Senate other trial, impeachment, the the first impeachment um, that behind <laughs> closed doors, there were Republican senators saying, I believe that collusion happened. I believe he is guilty. But I know that if I vote this way, that he will do everything in his power to get me voted out in the next term. And, and to a degree, it's like, you know, the three of us offline off this podcast have talked about this possibility of, of this MAGA party, this Patriot party, whatever it is. And, and, and I think we're seeing that happen in real time that the party is splitting. And I, I, there's a part of me that says I didn't vote for Mitt Romney, but damn, would he be a lot better than Donald Trump, right? And so it's this idea of like, yeah, I don't want more senators coming in who are of that MAGA mentality. But at the same time, you got to vote for what's right. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Are I'm you trying my damnedest? Yeah. So let me ask you this. Um, there's been some talk about to protect senators, both politically and physically, that the actual impeachment vote will be done secretly. So you won't know who voted for who. You can go oh, in wow. and vote anonymously that if you want to convict him, you can convict him. But we're never going to release that it was Rob Portman that did the vote, right? There's sure. talk of that. <laughs> and, and so my thought, and I have, I have two schools of thought on this. In the short term, I think this is expedient and I think this is prudent. In the long term, this is a very, very bad idea. Because I just think that there are just certain things that are important enough to where we need to know who, yep. where you stood on this yep. issue. And 100%. history is going to judge where you were on this issue. And you do not want to be on the wrong side of history. 
Yeah. And, and I think in those terms a lot. And I know that Nixon gets a bad rap, but at least Nixon had the decency to resign because he knew how history would remember him. And if you look at him now, he's not looked at favorably, but people don't hate him either because time does heal all wounds, or at least mostly. So I don't, I'm don't. i not comfortable with the idea of some sort of secret ballot where you could vote, but at the same time, I get why you kind of need to do it. And if that gets us to move our politics to a point where it's more civil, kind of the way it was um, pre-Tea Party. Right. I can't say, I, I can't dismiss the idea out altogether. Yeah, I, I, I think that it is, you're spot on. It's a slippery slope, right? Because if we say, okay, this one can be anonymous, where does that stop? And then what stops every single politician from being like, oh, yeah, yeah. I voted in this way. And it's like, well, the numbers don't add up. Some of y'all are lying. And you're right. That's right. We, we vote, uh, us as citizens, we vote based on, in part, what your voting record has been. Um, so I, I'd be curious to see what's going to end up happening with that and how they put controls around that. To, to prevent the slipperiness of that situation. Um, but when you talk about the safety of people, I'm going to go on a slight tangent here. I read a really interesting article in the New York Times yesterday between the New York Times and, and Dr. Fauci, um, where he talked about what it was like over the last year receiving death threats um, receiving threats to his family, his wife, his children, his grandchildren, mm -hmm. because he was stating facts, because he was, um, and, and he even said, he's like, I never proactively contradicted the president, but people would ask the president something and then they would look at me and they'd say, Dr. Fauci, what do you think? And he's like, it, I, I have, it's my job. I have to tell the truth. And as a result, I received death threats. And it's a sad state that we are at a place in our country where there are so many people that will look at you and say, if you vote this way, if you say this thing, I want you dead. And that's terrifying. And I don't know how we come back to that. And I'm going to come back from that. And I'm going to kind of turn the conversation back to you, Dennis, and say, what do you think Biden and his administration can do to help if anything, with the the giant number of people in this country that firmly believe that he and every Democrat are the devil and that we should die. Like, how, how do we come back from that? And not everybody who voted for Trump feels that way, of course, but there are a lot of people that do. And when we think about senators being afraid to vote because they fear for their lives and, you know, for their jobs, but certainly their lives. There's reality to that. How do we heal that? You know, Ash, I, I we don't have enough time to really sort of come <laughs> up with it. I mean, we could sort of whiteboard the solution all day, and then there's going to be people that sort of poke holes in it. But sure. I think the thing for me, when I think about the nature or the spirit of your question, 
I just keep going back to this idea of grievance because all of the people that stormed the Capitol had a grievance. They, for one reason or another, whether they believe the big lie or they're anarchist or whatever, but they had a grievance. But to me, the grievance isn't that the election was stolen. To me, the grievance was the whole, the, the America that I knew was changing and it makes me uncomfortable. That, because everybody on that, on the TV that day, none of those people look like me. And if they had been, they'd all be shot dead and they would, and they, and they would have justified it, but they didn't look like me. They looked like you. And I know people, I've had people tell me personally that they were ashamed that they would now be associated with people who did that simply because they shared the same skin color. I've never yep. heard anybody <laughs> white say that to me in my life. But I had someone who was smart, thoughtful, and intelligent, someone I have a lot of love and respect for, tell me that. And it yep. told me that this perspective is, chain, is changing in the sense of there are two different Americas that have, that have emerged, but I think when that emergence happened, a large segment of the population always knew there were two different Americas. 100%. And now, and now you have a particular group of the population that are now waking up to it too, saying, wait, there shouldn't be two Americas. There should be one. It's kind of like I'm late to the party. Like the people who it's, it's like ban, people who jump on the bandwagon, and you know you make fun of people that jump on the bandwagon. But I've always believed I don't care when you get there, just as long as you get there. And I think people have gotten there now, and you don't want to be associated with that type of behavior. <laughs> but yeah. to sort of drive the point home, there's now talk of if you stormed the Capitol that day but you didn't really do anything more than trespass or you were loitering, like you're not on video committing a violent act. There's no evidence of you plotting an insurrection. You were just there. They're talking about not charging those people with anything. That bothers me because if I got a traffic ticket that required me to show up to court, I would be required to show up regardless of my circumstances. And when you have to go to court, and I've had to go to court once or twice in my life, what I've noticed is that a lot of those people end up either looking like me or those people are living in poverty because, again, mm -hmm. two Americas. So if we're going to have one America with one set of rules, then all of these people have to be charged. But the justification is, well, we'll overwhelm the court system. But you don't have any problem overwhelming the court system right. when someone is caught with, you know, drugs. You have no problem overwhelming the court system then. Right. And so this level of grievance that I'm noticing or that I've noticed has really awakened people's eyes. And to me, that's the challenge is how do you create a bond? How do you create unity with someone who isn't even willing to listen to you. And so to answer your question directly, and I'm sorry I'm being long-winded about it, but you cannot compromise with those people 
you have to you have to disassociate with yourself with them. To me, the best thing that could happen is that Trump starts a third party and all those people flock there. Now they're easily identifiable. Now we know where you stand. But the downside to that is Republicans become the de facto center. And I know for you guys, because we've talked about this, that scares you guys a little bit. I don't think it scares me. I don't I don't see the math that way. I, I see a spectrum of the United States where the existing right doesn't match the it is not calibrated in regards to the center of the the country. And I have a difficult time seeing how taking away the the more um, misunderstood, the not misunderstood, the, the more insane part of that party, um, giving more credence. You know, you get rid of Donald Trump and the MAGA party. That doesn't make me want to vote for Mitt Romney. He's still got shit policies. He may be a, a more civil human being than those individuals, but it doesn't make me one iota more likely to vote for a Mitt Romney. Or do I think that a, a moderate American becomes more entranced with the Republican Party in that space? I think you've got a, a party currently that is built on religious exemptions and personal freedoms. And I don't see the way how the the centrist side of the Republican Party attracts more people still standing on that platform. I think that makes sense. I just, I just think that for, there's a certain comfort level with that style of Republican that people feel safe with them. And I think that is where they can get people sort of these Biden Republicans or what used to be Reagan Democrats. They can start to pull some of those folks back and create a bit of a power base. That that's kind of what I, what I see because there are people that held their nose and voted for Trump, just like there are people that held their nose and voted for Biden. If the split does happen, I think these people will have found a home. The question is, how many of these people are there, and are there enough people to where they can dictate how things get done in Congress? Because they become the middle. So, like, I could see a scenario where Democrats might hold the majority, but instead of having 218 seats, they have, like, I don't know, make up a number, 150. And then these guys have, like, 70 seats. And then this other group has however many that are left, if that makes sense. And all of a sudden, yeah. it's no one can has a majority so you're going but, to have to build a coalition in order yeah. to get things done. These people will be willing, I think, to work with Democrats. But at the same time, I think they will sort of placate the far right, yeah. much in the way that Democrats placate the far left, in order to keep things quiet. But I think the other thing that's important here is you cannot mistake quiet for peace. Oh, I think because, we I think we learned that big time. <laughs> and we've been doing that. We've been doing that since Reconstruction. We've been doing yeah. that since then. 
where we forgave the South for their insurrection in an effort to gain uh, to score political points. And then people like me suffered for over a hundred years as a result of that compromise. Yep. Yep. And 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 we've been told over and over and over about you know you, it's it, it's coming and time be patient and this that, and the third. Like one of the most frustrating days of my life every year is MLK Day. Not because we shouldn't celebrate it, but because people will post these quotes. And then if King was alive, you would be calling him a leftist and a Marxist, and you would be saying that he's some crazy communist liberal based and on how what dangerous he, he is. Yeah, based on what he was advocating for. Like, you wouldn't support yep. that man today. Like, my favorite quote from King is none of the uplifting stuff. It's all it's the quote about the, the biggest obstacle to equality is the white moderate. And yep. it goes back to that idea yes. of mistaking quiet for peace. And Democrats, to bring this full circle, settle for the quiet to keep the peace. This is not a time to be quiet. And this sort of brings me to, you guys are really good with the segues today. This brings me <laughs> to the other thing I want to talk about is can we achieve a level of unity? Because all I hear is unity, unity, unity. That we got to find it, that we got to get to it, that these are our better, we have to appeal to our better angels. And I think about what my brother tells me all the time, which is this is who we are. There's no appealing to our better angels. There's no we're better than this. This is who we are. So can you achieve unity without accountability? And so, John, I, I, I ask you specifically that question, because I don't think it's possible. I think you have to. I think about it in this in, in this way. And I heard this the other day, so I'm stealing this. This, is, this is, isn't an original thought. I think about it in terms of when you get a wound and make no mistake, the country is wounded on a lot of different levels. The only way to really heal from a wound is to clean the wound, to clean the infection. Because if it gets infected, everything else starts to decay and crumble underneath that if you don't take care of the infection. So we have to clean this infection. And the only way to do that from a political perspective is to hold people accountable. But all I hear is, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. And so I turn over to you guys. What do you guys think? So, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely understand all that you're saying in that space. I think this idea of unity, I, I think the idea of unity as a blank slate that everybody gets to start over again and we all kumbaya and move on. I, I don't think that that is beneficial for anyone. And, and I think that that's a dangerous idea as well, because there needs to be consequence for the actions taken. Um, the, the civil society that we have all agreed to be a part of um, was, was a, there was an attempt to take that away. There was an attempt to insurrect that. Um, I, I almost wonder if the idea of unity almost, 
almost comes back to the idea of we need to unify into one reality. Um, I, I think about autoimmune diseases and how you can confuse your own body where it starts to attack the healthy cells. And that's where I think we are right now. You know, you, you talked about how there's this consideration in the DOJ that if you were an insurrectionist who was uh, an insurrectionist by proximity, that maybe we won't charge those individuals out there. The interviews that I heard with those people, they are living in an alternate universe. They're making a lot of the same points that I make on a daily basis about how our government should be helping us, supporting us. And they're out there fighting us, fighting the Democrats on this, when in reality, it's their own party that's holding things up. And it makes me think that that concept of unity needs to be almost part of the order of operations. So so Ash was talking about term limits and how we can't get term limits into place. And it makes me wonder, what is the order of operations that we need to get to, to restore, not even restore, to build back better as, as Joe Biden's <laughs> mantra has been. You went there. Um, you really to, went there. I, uh, because I think it's, I think it's the right phrase. Like, I don't think there's a better way of saying it. You know, we, we talked about at the beginning how we had that sense of relief and there was that sense of normalcy. We don't want to go back to where we were four years ago. No. Where we were four years ago, where we were 30 years ago, where we were 100 years ago is not a great America. So no, it's what got us Donald Trump. Build- it, it is absolutely what got us Donald Trump. And so it makes me wonder when you look at term limits, when you look at Citizens United, when you look at your favorite Dennis ranked choice voting, when you look at this propaganda machine that we have just absolutely infecting 40% of our population, it, it lends yourself to say, okay, What's that first battle? We talked about what we wanted to see from the Biden administration. I want them to start picking apart those pieces so that we can get to the foundation of of racism and inequality and oppression that we have going on in this country. And it may not be the next 18 to 24 months, the next 48 months that gets us to term limits but what are those steps that we can take along the way to start building up that foundation for a better society, a more equitable society for everyone that's out there? So I think we do need to unify as a society. I don't think that unity means actions without consequence, though. Can you do that in a capitalistic society? Can you build that kind of equality? Now, in a capitalistic society, because I struggled with this idea because everything you're saying, I could see my conservative friends coming back saying, build back better for who? Because you're going to pull resources for me in order to make it better for someone else. And I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. And I think that's not necessarily 
a wrong point of view. I think capitalism puts us in a race against each other to some degree. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I struggle with that because the spirit of what you're saying, I agree with. And people that I come in contact with who are of all different political stripes agree on that. It's it's more of the how. And I, I, I don't I don't know. Ash, what do you think? How do, how do we I know you talked about it, but I know you're a little pessimistic about it. But is there <laughs> something that could be done? Like John talked about these sort of small steps um, like I think about Biden's executive order that says, hey, all of the agencies, whatever you're doing, you need to do it with a with a thought of equity in mind and making sure that no one's being discriminated against in the policy decisions that you're making. To me, that seems like a fair first step that honestly should have happened 100 years ago. But we uh, I'm not going to go there. Yeah. So I, I definitely have spent a lot of today. Uh, expressing a lot of pessimism, but I'm I'm going to circle back to something that we talked about at the very beginning to show some of my optimism and answer your question. And it's coming back to what we are seeing with the cabinet picks. And yes, there is something to the diversity, but it's not just diversity because of the color of their skin or their gender or their sexual identity. It's, it's not about that. Um, it's, it's about having representation from people who for as basically as long as this country has existed, have been underrepresented and oppressed. And you know, it's how, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite and at a time. I, th- I think this is That's a very... elephants. What? Oh, cancel culture. I think it's cancel culture to elephants. Yeah, cancel culture. <laughs> I think yeah, this yeah. is <laughs> a very, very positive step in the right direction to have things um, move a little bit more towards unity. Um, But I'm also going to come back to something I said before. I think that we will continue. If you if you look at what a lot of people have issues with, I think a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it can be boiled down to uh, income inequality. A tremendous amount of pain Mm -hmm. that we see in this country is based in income inequality. And I think that. And I don't know, I'm not going to pretend to know what this would entail, but we have to get rid of Citizens United. I, I, I And honestly, that is one thing that regardless mm-hmm. of political affiliation, I have seen people say once they understand what it is, they're like, yeah, that's stupid. Why do we have this? We should get rid of this. I don't want corporations having unlimited funding towards my politicians. It is something that everybody agrees to, but... I, I don't know how we get rid of it when corporate corporate spending is and lobbyists are so deeply entrenched. But what happens and what we have seen happen and it's getting exponentially worse is the rich are getting significantly richer and the classes are 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 the middle class is shrinking. We are you can see that it, it is visible 
And I think that when that continues to happen, we will continue to have pain. And maybe, maybe that's what it's going to take. Maybe it will require things to get so bad. And this happens, it happens all throughout history that things get so bad and then there's a tipping point and there's a a revolution or whatever word you want to use. And there's a hard reset. Maybe that's what ends up happening. But if not, I am encouraged by what we're seeing in the cabinet picks, what we're hearing from people about how they want to proceed, what their expectations are, what their hopes are. I don't have any choice but to watch it all play out and continue to try to stay involved at the state and local level because we have seen that that is where real change, that is where people like you and I and everybody that is listening, that is where we have the ability to have the largest impact. It's not about the national level. Yes, of course, the national level makes a big difference. But where do you think Nancy Pelosi started? Where do you think Mitch McConnell started? They started at the state and local level. And if you are passionate about what is going on in this country and where you want to see it go and about unity and about seeing the right things happen, you need to get involved at the state and local level. Traditionally, those are elections that don't get a lot of participation. It is the national elections for president and maybe senators that people get involved in. But I think that we are learning more than ever how incredibly important it is to pay attention because that trickles up. And that, in my opinion, is what is going to change our country for the better. If we can get, and we, the three of us talked about this recently, if we can get more involved with our community and damn COVID (laughs) makes that real hard right now. But if we can give a shit, excuse my language about our neighbors and about. No, I will not excuse your language. This is a free platform for you to express. (laughs) I've heard your other podcasts, (laughs) Um, but we need to start caring about one another um, and pay attention to local politics. And I think that's what fixes us. Um, I just really hope we're able to get there. Yeah, I hope so, too. And so the last thing that I kind of wanted to talk with you guys about is um, big tech's impact on free speech, Um, because Trump got taken off of Twitter and then all these other companies followed suit. Parler got taken off of Amazon. And I'm torn about this because on some level, it, I was okay with it simply because people don't really understand how free speech works. And Trump doing what he was doing is like the digital version of yelling fire in a theater. And the thing about free speech is, yeah, you are allowed to say what it is that you want to say, but not at the cost of public safety. And if the public's threatened, you don't get, you're not protected by your First Amendment right. And one of the examples that I love to use is one that I got in college, where if you burn a cross in your yard, it's free speech. And I'm your neighbor. It's free speech. You burn it in your yard. You burn a cross in my yard, and that is hate speech. That's a hate. Mm -hmm. And so I struggle with this because... 
Free speech is designed to protect the speech you don't like, not the speech that you like. And so I struggle with this because there is no clear sort of uniform rule by which we're going to operate when it comes to free speech in a digital way. And I'm not someone who believes in a bunch of new regulation and law because we've got a million of them on the books. I feel like we should use the ones we have and enforce them unless it doesn't necessarily exist or you want to improve upon something that's outdated. But I do think at this point, given how social media has evolved, social media is the equivalent of the telephone. And the telephone is was regulated. Like it's a regulated thing. And I just feel like Twitter, Facebook, platforms like that need to be regulated. So we all know what the rules are. Because today, the idea that Jeff Bezos or um, any of these other tech guys, Jack Dorsey and um, whatever the guys, Facebook guys. Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. I couldn't think of on the tip of my tongue. Thank you. The idea that these guys could unilaterally shut down speech that they don't like They've opened yep. the door to that, and I'm not comfortable with them having that type of power with no rules in place to say this is how you govern it. And I know that they have their own policies, but it's the equivalent of policing yourself because they go to Congress and they do the hearings and, and this and the third. But that's all in an effort to not have the government tell them what to do. And I get it. No one wants the government telling them what to do. But – in this instance, I think we need some some guardrails here about what's going to work and what's not going to work. And I'm curious, from your perspectives, what you guys think about their impact on on free speech. That's heavy. Um, I, I'm 100 <clears throat> with you, uh, Dennis. I, I I have a lot of concern. And you see, we've seen a lot lately, a lot of misunderstanding of the First Amendment. Um, And the First Amendment has to do with what the government can and can't do. It doesn't say squat about what corporations can and can't do. So, yes, Facebook and Twitter, they have every right to say you can't say this, but you can say this. Where we run into issues is these companies... uh, have monopolies over uh, information, not entirely, but in in large part in the way our society is constructed as it is today, they have a monopoly over how information is distributed, especially Amazon. When you see Parler not being able to exist because they could not be on the Amazon web server, Um, that's just true. And while I certainly celebrated parlor coming down, it also scares me because it's like, well, I celebrated this because I don't like what parlor and the people who joined it stood for and believed in. But what if it was the opposite side of the coin? What if I was frustrated about what was going on in the Trump administration and I joined a social media platform that had people who felt similarly that I did and they said, whoa, whoa, we don't like that you're saying uh, negative things about the president. We will not allow you to host your platform here. Sure, go somewhere else. Just kidding. There isn't anywhere else. So I'm with you. It scares me. And 
um, one thing that the the three of us talked about, and I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole, but we talked very briefly recently about the Constitution and making changes to it. And you guys have heard me say this, but uh, I'll throw it out again, is our founding fathers, one of which being Thomas Jefferson, argued that the Constitution as a document should be completely rewritten roughly about once every generation. Because his argument was, why should the rules and laws of a grandparent govern those of a grandchild when things change so much? And it makes sense, right? Why are we looking at these amendments to make decisions 200 years later? And Dennis, you brought up a good point. You're like, they couldn't have even fathomed the internet. And so when we're sitting here and we're talking about big tech, and their involvement in free speech, we can't look to the Constitution because the Constitution doesn't have a damn clue what the Internet is. And so, yeah, I absolutely think there needs to be some kind of guardrail around this, because uh, while I disagree with many things that have happened on the, quote, far right as of late, I can empathize with this idea of you. I, I don't have a platform to have my speech because of these giant tech company monopolies. And I find that to be frightening. And they push them to Russian servers, which is now a um, national security threat. <laughs> so I just, oh, I just yeah. don't dude, Like, I don't know if you guys knew that, but yeah, like there were Russian, the Russian company stepped up and said, Oh yeah, we'll host you on our server. So it's back. It's just on Russian servers. So a again, I, I just think that, you know, we live in a um, in an outrage sort of culture right now. And I do think this is where conservatives do have it right to some degree that this idea, I think they go too far with the idea of cancel culture. I really think they go too far with it. But I do think they do have a point that, you know, you can't necessarily unilaterally just get rid of the speech that you don't like because it's not, you know, Popular. I, I do think that's a principle that's important. Um, I just think we need some clear rules about how to do it. Yeah, my question would be, what's the difference between popular and what's the difference between propaganda and manipulating? And does the First Amendment protect my right to lie to you? And that's where <laughs> I am less challenged. By yeah, but isn't that subjective? That's the, the that's the it, whole point, Ash. Is that it is subjective, but and this this country loves precedent and it loves tradition, and we have had a litany of characters run for office in this country that have out and out lied, but they were protected Absolutely. by their but by their first amendment right and so john i get what you're saying a hundred percent the truth tr what is truth i i think this is right. back to ash's comment about or you, your comment about you know this sort of alternate reality that people are living in in that bubble mm -hmm. what you're saying is not truth and right. i never buy this right. idea of some sort of media conspiracy this sort of leftist all media is coming from an agenda like every documentary you watch is, sure. is coming from a point of view and has an agenda. Um, 
And so agenda doesn't bother me. Like Fox News doesn't bother me that they provide an alternative point of view. I think the point you're making is that is that when they lie, like we have obje- we have like objective fact mm-hmm. and you just don't want to accept it. So you lie. You're still protected by that First Amendment. Right. And so. I don't know. And, and so to my conservative friends, I kind of lean with them a little bit just in the sense of we should let the free market decide. So to me, the way to combat that is I'm not going to advertise on Fox News. Maybe if I'm Spectrum, I pull the channel so they can't get paid because I don't want to be associated with people that come on TV and tell lies about it. But until the financial incentive becomes great enough to pull the plug, you know, and so that's kind of how I think about racism now is that it used to be profitable to be racist because everything was set up for you to benefit from it. And I think we've evolved as a country to the point where now it's not profitable to be racist. You can't be rich and be racist now. You might be in the sense of you got your money before the country changed. But now that we're at, I mean, do you know what the most popular music is in the world? The most po- the most popular genre of music in the world is hip hop. I mean, watch any TikTok video. Yeah, I've seen this. I've seen this bus it challenge <laughs> five hundred times with Mexican girls and Asian girls, and I saw one woman was one hundred and four in a nursing home, and she did the bus it challenge. Oh, she has no idea. She has no idea what's going on, but she thought it was fun, and she got in on it. And so, I just think as long as there's an incentive um, for certain people, whether there's a profit motive or not that you're never going to be able to silence that free speech. And I think it's just one of those realities where we're going to have to live with the fact that this element is here, it's always here, and these people are protected by the law to say all the non-factual things they want to say. And, John, when you say that, that's what I hear you say. How do we get rid of that? And I just don't think we can. So it's not about getting rid of it. I think we need a step a, a step back from it. Like you, you made the comparison of social media being the new telephone, and and I would argue that social media is the new nuclear warhead. Um, that hmm. you pick up a telephone, you know who you're talking to, you know what you're talking about, you know you know the majority of what's going on in that space. You're telling me that those folks, the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol they pick up the internet in the same way because they absolutely do not. Um, They are hanging on to a defunct reality um, in that space. And I, I think that the problem isn't necessarily the platform itself. It's not parlor. It's not Facebook. It's not Twitter. It's the lack of critical thinking that we have not been able to do to teach that we don't prioritize for our kids because there is this group of individuals who's profiting off of our ignorance at whatever level that is and they're figuring out where that space is so i think you know the the bigger question for me aside from the platforms is how do we get to the kids who are growing up in the space how do we get to the people who are going out to the internet each and every day who don't understand how to vet their sources, how to look for what that spin is that you're talking about? And that's where our money would be better spent. That's where our effort would be better spent um, is to try to help people understand 
this new tool that we have in both its positives, which there are so many, and its negatives, which we saw on January 6th. That is so well-reasoned. I, I don't have anything to add to that. I agree that that's probably what it should be. Um, I just don't know how we get there. Because I, 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 I mean, the internet was just coming into its own when I came out of high school 20 plus years ago. And it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's evolved into something completely different. I mean, I think, I think about that Chappelle show skit where he's like, if the internet was a real place, would you go? And basically they <laughs> shot it inside of a mall. And it was like all this free music and all this porn. And it was like, man, I'm never coming to this place again. And so I, I, I get it. It'll be interesting. And I think that this type of conversation I know some people will listen to it and probably call it elitist, but I think it's a conversation that not only needs to be had, I think at least for high school students, I do think they should teach them how exactly mm -hmm. all of this works in a way that allows them to protect themselves. Because I think it's a lot of times um, parents struggle with what's the appropriate age to introduce them to not just a cell phone, but social media in general because of algorithms and everything. I was like, I know that California is either uh, pass a law or there's a proposed law. I think it's proposed that talks about if you are a company that uses an algorithm, you have to ensure that that algorithm doesn't discriminate on any level against anyone at any time. And when you think about how it's all governed by algorithms anyway, I, I think that's what's really scary. And I think, you know, Facebook and some of these other companies do have a, they have blood on their hands to some degree because the platform was weaponized. And if you are going to be stewards of the town square, which they claim to be, then you have some ethical responsibility to make sure that things don't get out of hand. And if, and I just don't trust them to do it themselves, I, I guess is what I'm saying. Not that I have faith in the government. I, I, I don't, but I don't, you know, it, we all know people on our jobs that believe in the idea of, oh, I QC myself, so I know I'm good. And that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. Um, so with that, um, any last thoughts you guys want to share? I mean, Biden's the president now. Oh, the last thing I'll say um, just about big tech, and this will, I guess, be my sort of parting shot is the one, if there's a blessing for the decision to get Trump off of Twitter, I will say this. I woke up the next day without a level of anxiety thinking, oh shit, what did he say now at three in the morning? And, 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 I, I, and, I, and, and I physically felt better just knowing that there wasn't going to be some crazy ass thing he said in the middle of the night. Because I had a fear that he would say something. And then before you know it, we went to war with some country over a tweet at 2.30 in the morning, you know, mm -hmm. where everybody's either asleep or they're high eating, high eating hot pockets. Like, I was really scared of that. And now that and once that was taken away. All of a sudden now I felt better, but I felt better in that sense of 
I feel good now, but I don't know what this means long term, but I don't think it's good. And so I thought I'd ask you guys the question um, to see if you guys were struggling with it the way that I was. I, I don't think I was struggling with it. I think what I what I imagine is I think we're all going to have several points over the next few weeks, even the next few months, where we just recognize that we're less stressed out than we were before because we don't have that megaphone in our ear. I I recognized that this weekend. I got into Sunday night, watched a little bit of football, and something felt different. And this was the first weekend that, you know, in the short term that I wasn't worried about an insurrection in my own state because there, there were planned armed protests going on by white supremacists. Um, and in the long term, over the course of the last four years, you have the work week to distract you. And then you start the weekend and you start to see, catch up on, on the nonsense that's been going on around you. I, I hope that we can use this moment and recognize how close we stood to the fire um, and, and put in structural changes to make sure that we're protected as a society um, and then to build on that for the, the citizens within it to right the wrongs that have been wrong the entire time that this country has been around. Well said. Well said. Well yeah. I, I got nothing to add to that. That was beautiful. And, and I, I too, it's, it's nice to look at the news and smile occasionally. <laughs> We're back to regular fights about policy. And I think that, right. Isn't that yeah. nice? <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think, uh, I, I, I think that that feels good. Um, so with that, um, I want to thank you guys for for jumping on and, and having this conversation. Um, it, it's always good to talk to you guys. And um, I'm finding that I'm I'm fortunate, lucky and blessed in my life to be able to have uh, these types of conversations with good friends and um, to be able to share that in a way that uh, hopefully people can learn and sort of educate themselves or maybe take a different perspective on stuff um, is, is really, really powerful and really important to me. So I, I just want to thank you guys for for taking some time to to hop on and, and, and have this conversation. And um, we'll have to do it again. This was, this was fun. I appreciate you both. Absolutely. Thank you for having the podcast, Dennis. I know the day after the insurrection, you had one that was um, it started me down the healing process. So um, I appreciate everything that you're doing out here. I, I will tell you, uh, I've been told by a couple people that it was cathartic, that they were feeling the same way and that yes. I um, gave voice to it. And I will just say, um, for those who have not listened to it, um, I was filled with a righteous anger. Um, I don't necessarily feel that yes. way, but um, it was it was in the moment. Um, it was a, an emergency episode. And um I feel better after after getting it all off my chest, but but thank you for that. I I, I really appreciate it, and so um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to do this again. Um, th this was fun. Hopefully, next before. time over chicken wings. Yes, yes, we need we need more smoked wings in our life. I need that mustard sauce bad. So, <laughs> um, yes. well, th thanks, guys. We'll do it again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Dennis. Yep. See you guys. Thank you.